wasn't sure where Sheila was headed with her message, but I thought she was going to share with you when she asked Jasper, because she does, she makes a meal for whoever, whatever you want on your birthday, like you said, with good reason, she makes that particular meal for you. So a couple of weeks ago, she asked Jasper what, he, what kind of food, what he wanted for his lunch, for his dinner today, and he started telling her he wanted some fried chicken and some mashed potatoes, and he kind of paused a little bit, and he said, oh, and then those little half-moon yellow things. And Sheila had to start processing her mind, what do you mean by yellow half-moon things? And she began, began thinking, and she said, do you mean macaroni and cheese? She said, yeah, I want macaroni and cheese with half-moon yellow things. So that's the addition to what we're having today for lunch in a little bit. I just thought I'd share that with you, a little description of macaroni and cheese, yellow half-moon things. Anybody else ever referred to them as that before? That was the first time for me, too. All right, well, hopefully it's not the first time you took to the back of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. You have your Bible. We're going to be looking in to the Sermon on the Mount. More narrowly, more specifically, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes. For the next several weeks, today we begin a little series talking about the Beatitudes. So we're going to be looking to Matthew chapter 5. Of course, you're going to find them within the first 11 verses of the chapter. Verse 12 we'll be reading together this morning. But before we begin, it's helpful to know that the word beatitude in the, is a term derived from the same word in Latin, and it technically means blessedness. And we will see as we read the beatitude in just a moment, the word blessed is used repeatedly. In fact, it's used in verses 3 through 11, so it's used nine times as the first word in those particular verses. And blessed then is just often associated with someone who has received divine favor as conveyed to a man, woman, or child by our almighty, powerful, sovereign God. While the word blessed is used in nine times within the first 12 verses, as I said a moment ago, they're really used to be able to begin the Beatitudes, which is primarily verses 3 through 10. And there's, while there's nine forms of blessed, we'll find in a moment when we read the text, there's actually eight Beatitudes. Now, it sometimes gets a little confusing because the Beatitudes are found in verses 3 through 10. And sometimes that word blessed is used in verse 11, and sometimes people think that's a ninth or additional Beatitude. But really, it's just linking together in verse 11, that with the previous verse in verse 10. That's a little bit about the Beatitudes, but some manuscripts actually tie together verses 4 and 5, as they describe the word poor, which we're elaborating on today. But scholars just look upon that and say, well, while we're being critical with that, the Latin text may have done that, but we're going to take them as we receive them in order and not worry anything about that. We're going to dig deeper, but before we dig deeper, let's get to the theme for today. The theme then is this. The Beatitudes, which we'll be talking about for the next several weeks, we can look upon as this way. They're a map of life, a series of directives helping us on our journey with God. And we should look upon them in a particular way. And as we read through them today in the next several weeks, as we look at the Beatitudes in number and begin to elaborate, you might need to look at your own heart and begin to evaluate yourself and examine your feelings towards them. You might even begin to ask yourself, can I or am I following any of these Beatitudes? And you may find then as you examine yourself about the Beatitudes, whether you can follow them, incorporate them, and practice them in your daily life, you may recognize that well, you need a spirit of humility. You need to be humble, almost like a childlike humility to be successful. 
In fact, Jesus elaborated upon that, even referred to that in Matthew 18, in verses 3 and 4. He said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we may find as we go through these Beatitudes in the next several weeks that we may need to humble ourselves, become childlike in nature, and then see how we can receive these and apply them in our lives. Well, let's get to the reading, Matthew chapter 5, and verses 1 through 12. Stand with me this morning, if you're able to, as we simply stand to honor the reading of the word. And we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5. It says this. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we do come before you, Lord, this morning, having read the text, Lord, and the words of our Lord. We pray, Lord, that the words we would read would not be empty and void, but actually would be meaningful to us. As we begin to explain these Beatitudes, Lord, I pray for your wisdom, I pray for your clarity, I pray for Lord, for all of us to receive what you want us to gain from our study and our discussions and our messages pertaining to these words, I pray, Lord, we would understand them, yes, but we see also, Lord, how we can apply these words in our lives that we live each and every day. The Lord, guide and lead and direct us. Let your spirit fill the church and fill our hearts. And let us hear your message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as noted earlier, the Beatitudes start with verse 3, verse 3 through 10 primarily, but we don't need to just discount the first two verses and push them aside and begin to jump into Beatitude number 1. So let's go back to the text and understand then what's happening in verses 1 and 2, because when you go back to the very beginning of the chapter and explore a little bit about what's happening, it actually sets the contextual setting for what's happening in the text and so we can better understand so go back to the beginning, verses 1 and 2. And you see here, it tells us, obviously, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. So I tell you that because verse 1 starts with a presupposition, meaning that as you get into chapter 5, that you've already understood, maybe already read what happened in the previous chapter in chapter 4. Because a lot of things that happened in the fourth chapter to lead into what we find here with the Beatitudes when he gets into the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7. So bear with me as we understand then what's happening in the fourth chapter, because verse 1 presupposes that you understand what already occurred. So what has happened in chapter 4, as you get into Matthew, 
is first of all, verses 1 through 11, you find that Jesus is being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to receive his temptations. He's tempted by the devil. And I'm sure you already know, having studied the Bible before, that Jesus is not tempted once, not twice, but three times. So verses 1 through 11 in the fourth chapter, Jesus led into the wilderness and is tempted by our adversary, by our enemy. And he passes all of his tests, of course. Well, then the transition is in verses 12 through 17 in chapter 4, that Jesus sets up his ministry in Galilee, particularly in Capernaum. Well, then in verses 18 through 22 in the fourth chapter, when everything, he's, he's passed the test by our adversary, he has as he's survived all that, he's, he's actually set up his ministry now. His next step in chapter 4 is to find his followers. So verses 18 through 22, he calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they leave everything behind and they follow him. And then the fourth chapter concludes with Jesus now teaching and preaching in the synagogues. Look with me in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4. The end of the chapter concludes this way. And he, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So then verse 24 says his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And in the middle of verse 25, then concludes the entire chapter and says, Great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, notably, then Jesus, in a relatively short time, he's, he's called a few men together to follow him, and now he's healing the people. He is now a large group, a multitude, as described, of people following him. So now, verse five, or chapter five, picks up in verse one. Of course, seeing the crowds, he had the multitude. He'd been healing people, seeing the people, seeing the crowds. He went up then onto a mountain. Yes, the People have been healed. In the previous chapter, we learned of infirmities and diseases. And because of that, a great multitude, a tremendous amount of people are following Jesus onto the mountain. And then he begins to have the most powerful sermon preached ever. Now, quick time out to be able to learn that the exact location of where Jesus delivered then his discourse, his most powerful sermon, the exact location is not known. But that does not diminish the fact that this is a significant moment which occurs for the people who have gathered and for the disciples with a breathtaking view of the Sea of Galilee. Back in 2016, when Sheila and I actually had a chance to go to the Holy Land, we went to the mountain, the Sea of Galilee. We went to the Mount Olive where this begins to occur. And we, we were there for a while. And, and for me, in the 10-day trip to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land, this was a breathtaking moment for me as well. I mean, of all the things we've seen, which it, you see so much is begin to, it's hard to recount them all. But that must have been a very special moment. Because I can vividly remember looking over the Sea of Galilee. And all of a sudden, a little breath of fresh air comes from the sea 
onto where we were. Sheila's hair gets brushed back a little bit, and I began to wonder if a, bre- if a wind gust was something like that at the moment that the disciples and the crowd was gathered together to hear the words of Jesus. And it was a breathtaking view overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And, and is, the exact location is not known, but scholars and, and archaeologists and, and people, historians of Israel, believe somewhere in the vicinity that we were standing is where he spoke these words to the people. That just makes a tremendous impact on you. And I hope someday you can experience the same thing. But getting back to the texture, even though the location is not known, we should observe the setting. It, it specifically tells us where it's happening. No, we don't know exactly where he was sitting, but he was there with his people. He was there with the disciples overlooking the mount, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, on the mountain. That's what it tells us. It tells us that because it wants us to know where he's at as this is happening. But notice in verse 1 also, we go back to the text because it tells us some more information. He has got his followers, the multitude are there, but look at the end of the verse. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, they're all gathered together, his disciples came to him, and when the crowd gathered, what does Jesus do? Notice he sits with them. It says he sat down. I read that last week and thinking, wow, wouldn't you just love to be among the crowd? When Jesus walks up, he doesn't stand before you like I am. He sits down with you and begins to speak to you. Wouldn't you just want to speak to Jesus sitting down face to face? That has got to be a memorable moment for sure. So notably then when Jesus sat down then, well, we don't understand because we typically stand when we're speaking, teaching, is that he sat at the position of authority, which is really the opposite of anything that we can think about today when it comes to teaching. I mean, Josh, Kimberly, Kayla, all the teachers, Gina, you stand when you teach. I'm standing now. But in the synagogue, in that particular day and time, the position of authority was to sit among the people. It's the opposite of what happens today. So we will see that when Jesus went up to the mountain, the crowd all gathered together, he sat with the people. That's really special. But he assumed a position of authority. And then he has the people gathered together. His disciples come to him. He's sitting. He is he is authoritative. And he begins to speak. And he says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, with the reading of the first beatitude, then in verse 3, allow me to expand for a moment upon the word that maybe is over repeatedly expressed in, in verses 3 through 11 that would bless. We noticed earlier he mentioned how nine times the word blessed is used. So the Greek word blessed here is makarios which simply means happy or fortunate. A lot of commentary thought has been written over the years in regards to this first word, blessed, that occurred over and over and over throughout the Beatitudes. But let us start examining the word blessed by asking the question. Why are the people blessed? Why is he saying this? Why, why is he using blessed over and over again? I mean, why would he say blessed? Why are they blessed? A couple of commentary thoughts. First is Larry Kennard, who says they are blessed because 
presence of the kingdom initiates a new era bestowing both present and end time blessings. He said, more importantly, he says next is that the Beatitudes are not entrance requirements in order to get into the kingdom, but are descriptive of the character and blessings of those in the kingdom. I hope that's helpful, but maybe Craig Wamberg adds more insight. He said the word blessed refers to those who are and or will be happy, fortunate, as those who are to be congratulated because of God's response to their behavior or situation. He says, so blessed, happy, fortunate are those who are poor in spirit, the bears of the kingdom of heaven. Now, hopefully that helps you then understand why they're blessed. They're blessed because they're the response to their behavior, they're happy, they're fortunate. But maybe the most important words to key upon is poor in spirit. So what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? Well, first observe, maybe the word poor is the most important word used in that particular phrase. Because when you think about poor, when we think about poor in our English language, in our terms, in our idea, we think about terms meaning poverty. Poor, poor is, let's say, people who have poverty or, or conditions in which you don't have much, or, or people who have misfortune, or just are miserable. I mean, even the Greek word, patokos, understands the meaning of extreme poverty. Maybe even people who are begging, I mean, for alms, asking for alms. I mean, they're begging people in nature. They're poor. Even the Greek word associates poor in the way that we would. But Jesus does not intend to merely say, blessed are those who are needy, misfortunate, who are miserable. But rather to say what Robert Mounts tells us. He says that the word poor are simply not the economically disadvantaged, but those who in their need have turned to God for help. He says to be poor in spirit means to depend totally upon God. That's a new way to associate the word poor then. We don't think we think of poor meaning people who just don't have very much. Low income, financial things. We measure it that way. But what poor in spirit is meaning according to what we learn here is that poor in spirit means those people who depend totally upon God for help. So we take what we learn here about what and then mix that together and we always talk about this question. We phrase verse 3 in this way. Blessed, happy, fortunate are those who in their need have turned to God for help. They're poor. Who totally depend upon God for help. And they're poor. They're poor in that sense. Who totally depend upon God. And there then, the blessed, happy, fortunate are those who in their need know to turn to God for help. Who totally depend upon Him. For there is the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means as you get into the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For there is the kingdom of heaven. And as to how 
Is that any different than modern When you people still today turn to God for help? Do you, do I, do we turn to God for help? I mean, do we depend upon God in our lives? I mean, how is what we learn here, the dependency and turning to God for help, how is it any different in modern day than we can even find in the scripture, in the Bible, or in Christianity? Because there's many occurrences throughout the scriptures, throughout God's word, where people actually are dependent upon God and turn to him for help. The first one I thought of was Moses. In Exodus chapter 16, when the people were on the bill Exodus, they were hungry. You know, they were bitterly complaining to Moses, whining and crying about being hungry and thirsty. Moses didn't hurt the people. And he turned to God for help. Manna was provided. Even further in the same chapter, chapter 16, God provided the meat. He gave them plans. People complained. Moses heard it. But he turned to God for help. But there's other turns, such as 2 Kings 4. But the woman who sought out Elijah's prophet, all she had when she sought out Elisha, she had nothing but a pot. And she feared that she would have to sell her sons into slavery to pay for the debt that she owed to her husband who did not. She's a widow. She had nothing. She called on Elisha. Elisha then called upon God. And God gave him an endless flow of oil, a very special commodity that was provided for her. The ultimate pay for all of her debt and all of her business she would ever do for her. But there's other currency to marry to women. We've been married five times. You know the story we call that Jesus came upon her while she was drawing water to the well. He asked her for Jesus. Ultimately, he told her that he could give her water in which she would never thirst again. Matthew chapter 9, when a woman pressed up against the crowd just to get to see Jesus and just to touch the hem of the garment. Because she's had this constant flow of blood for several years. She turned to God. She knew she could receive her help. Or John chapter 9, when you have a man who has never seen before. Or in Mark chapter 6, when the multitude of people are again following Jesus at Gennesaret. And the people just literally run throughout the region. They carried the sick on mats, or however they could get to Jesus. So it could be Jesus. And there's numerous accounts that go on and on and on about people who finally recognize, who really know they can depend upon God. So the scripture is full of accounts of people who recognize they're poor in spirit. They depend on God. But are we the same? Do we also depend on Totally upon God in our lives? Or are we just no longer poor in spirit? As the now what it is I mean, meaning not poor and economically disadvantaged, but poor, as Robert Mouse has stated, people who know and they need help, they turn to God and are totally dependent on God for all their help. 
Remember the words of the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or the way we rephrase the blessed, happy, fortunate are those who in their need had turned to God for help. We have totally defend upon God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we ask again. We begin to process our, examine our lives. Do we, like many people we can find in the scripture, do we depend totally upon God? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. We are eight days into a new year. And a lot of times we come up on a new year, we want to change something about ourselves. So maybe if we begin to evaluate a new year, a new life we're seeking, wanting, maybe we need to look, are we totally dependent upon God? Because only you really know the answer, well, in God. But God knows if you truly are dependent upon Him or if you really are dependent and relying upon self. So think about it and be honest and evaluate your actions. Are you dependent upon God or more upon self? Because if you're like countless people in the world today, then you are dependent upon self and not truly poor in spirit. Pew Research Center found that when it comes to where Americans, narrowing in, not the world, just American level, where Americans place their trust as they gather information before making an important decision, notice, a big majority, 81% truly is a big majority, say they rely a lot on their own research. Many more say they rely on a lot of friends, family, 43%, or professional experts. I read that and I'm thinking, okay, that tells me that we are really dependent upon ourselves and what we can do, what we can find, and other people and our professionals to help us make a decision in our lives and whatever it may be. So we ask ourselves, is this representative of my life? Am, am I in the big majority? A lot of people are. 81% is a big number. I'm thinking, where then, for the people in the big majority, where is God in the decision-making process? And I say, I guess they're not poor in spirit, by the way we understand it, because the poor in spirit are those who consciously depend on God, not on themselves, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I said, okay, I hear you speaking to me. But to be dependent on God, what are you talking about? These decisions, these things. I mean, yeah, maybe I find myself in this big majority, but what are you really talking about? I mean, what kind of decisions are you referring to? I mean, to be dependent on God means coming to him in his presence. Know this first. To be dependent upon God means I'm coming to him in his presence, on my knees, seeking him because I need his help. And I know I can depend upon God to give me that help. I have an obstacle, I have a dilemma, I have a decision, I have a challenge in my life. And I need God to lead me in the right path. I can depend upon God. He won't tell me, he won't lead me wrong. I'm dependent upon God in situations like this. Changing career, changing job. I hope you truly never do that on your own without going to God. Or, or maybe getting married or getting engaged. 
or having children or surgery, any kind of treatment. I mean, whatever it may be, for any challenge, any obstacle, any dilemma, any decision, we should be dependent upon God, not self, not family, not friends, not so-called experts, because you'll find they're not really the experts after all. We should be dependent upon God and then know what it means to be poor in spirit. But then I've heard people say, maybe I even said it before, that these problems I have, whatever it is, they're, they're menial. They're, they don't, I mean, I don't want to bug God with this small stuff. God's much too busy to hear my stuff. If you've ever said that, ever thought before that God's too busy to hear your stuff, that you're going through, your challenge, you need less nonsense. That's a bunch of garbage somebody told you. Listen, you're not bugging God when you pray to God about anything going on in your life. You're not bugging him but rather you're acknowledging his sovereignty, his power, and his authority. It is knowing that you need God, and, and he, you can depend upon God, and he'll be there, he'll give you the answer, and it's also knowing you're bankrupt. You're bankrupt in your power. We have no power. We only think we have power. But we're bankrupt in any power we have, especially about Christ. Poor in spirit refers not only to not, not to poor quality of faith, but to acknowledgement of one's spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy apart from Christ. That is the meaning of poor in spirit. That's what we're elaborating on with this first beatitude. And every born again believer should want to be poor in spirit. People who in their need had turned to God for help, who totally depend upon God. The period sport in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, are those who consciously depend on God, not on themselves. They recognize they are bankrupt in power apart from Christ. So we hear that. We need to ask ourselves this question then. Are you poor in spirit? Are you among the people who would define themselves now as poor in spirit? And perhaps you never thought about the question before. Because maybe you understood poor as the economic disadvantage. But now we see poor is much more than that. In fact, it's not even that. It's those who totally depend upon God. So are you poor in spirit in which you depend upon God to help you? We should be want to have the label as being poor in spirit. In all of our decisions, in any obstacle, any challenge, in difficult moments, we should want to be poor in spirit and turn to God for help. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That is the first of eight beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We should want to be in the category of poor in spirit, not in the big majority trying to do all of our research on our own and make our own decisions. We should go to God and depend totally upon Him. That's poor in spirit. There's one thing more I should point out about what it may mean to be poor in spirit. I'd be amiss if I didn't point this out. That is this. 
To be poor spirit, as mentioned, is to be bankrupt without Christ. We can think of it that way. Which means then that also, when you're bankrupt without Christ, you recognize that you're poor inwardly. I mean, that you, you're empty without Christ. You're having no ability to please God and absolutely no ability to save yourself. Because at the core of our heart, we are sinners. I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitfully above all things and desperately wicked. Paul declared in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, There's none righteous, no, not one. I mean, at the core in our heart and inwardly within our soul, we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves, and we're desperately bankrupt without Christ. So then the poor in spirit now, then we could also say this, are those who are conscious of their sins and know in their hearts that they're completely unworthy of the grace that the most holy and loving God pours down upon them. Let me say it again. The poor in spirit is... Those who depend upon God totally, but also those who are conscious of their sins and know in their wicked heart that they are completely unworthy of the grace that a holy, just, loving God pours down upon them by giving us His Son. You may have heard me mention the name Dick Gantenbein once previously in a message. Um, you never met Dick Antonbein. So the name may mean absolutely nothing to you. When I lived in Texas, there was a man who had retired from working in the coal mine, and his name was Dick Antonbein. And Dick would have never, ever in his life described himself as being poor in spirit because he was always dependent upon himself to get him through some difficult situations in life. He knew, I mean, he's always been taught, pull up your boots and get on with life and get through it. He, he taught his children the same thing. You, you don't need to depend on anybody else but yourself. You can do it. Just get it done. So Dick would have never described himself as poor in spirit. In fact, he was so out there in the world, away from being poor in spirit, away from being dependent upon God, that he told the pastor of the church we were going to that lived next door to his house, he went to the pastor. He didn't want to hear anything about God. And he went to him, knocked on his door, and said, Pastor, preacher, let me tell you this. You don't preach to me, and I will throw my beer cans in your yard. So he was never would have defined himself as poor in spirit. And as we learn here, that he was not conscious really of his sin. But as you got to know Dick Gantenbein over the years, things began to change, and the change really occurred when he went to the theater and saw the movie Passion to Christ. When he watched what Jesus suffered for every one of us who took that beating, who was humiliated on the cross with this agonizing death, when the nails were driven to his body, he couldn't stand it. He, he recognized his sinful nature. He recognized, he recognized his deceitful, wicked heart. And he, and he saw that he, for the first time on his life, could be dependent upon God, not self. 
So he became poor in spirit. And it changed his entire life. He's passed on now. But the fact that he recognized his sin, he recognized the fact that he could not save self, and he recognized his need for Savior, he is happily now with the Lord. Then he could go through the rest of his life before he died being described as someone who is poor in spirit. And that should be all of us, because if you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner in the need of a Savior, you are poor in spirit, and the kingdom of heaven is yours, as it was for Dick Antonine. Jesus gathered the crowd together. He's sitting down with them, and he tells them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, he tells them so much more, which we'll have to get into next week. But today, leave here understanding what it means to be poor in spirit and want to be among those who are poor in spirit, to be dependent upon God and to recognize that we have these sins and we have a need for a Savior and there's only one who can save us. It is not self. It is only Jesus. We have much more to go. But again, I'll leave you with this today, which is the theme we'll have for the next several weeks. Again, remember the Beatitudes are a map of life, a series of directives helping us on our journey with God. One of the scholars I was reading said, they are pronounced upon the person who is righteous, having faith and hope in God. They are signs of a life lived in proximity to Yahweh, to God, in the experience of forgiveness and the love and favor of God. Leave here today wanting, if never understand it before, leave here today wanting to be called poor poor in spirit. That's what we shall be. Poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is ours. Father, we thank you for the examination we can have today, Lord, of our lives. Lord, we thank you for how we can understand the text better. And how then today we can be categorized even call ourselves poor in spirit. Lord, I pray for all of us corporately together if somehow, some way in life, we've never positioned ourselves to be dependent upon you, and to be, we just find that we can do it our own, in our own way, let us just change that today, Lord. It's the beginning of a new year, and there's no better time to change something about our lives today, Lord, than to change our direction of not wanting to rely on self, but rather, Lord, to rely upon you and to be totally dependent upon you. So for, for all of us then, Lord, today to hear that, let us change our life today. Make a commitment to you and go to you, Lord, for life's decisions. And we know we can trust you. You'll never leave us wrong. I pray that for all of us today, Lord. So thank you for how we can be here today to receive your message and to become the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is ours. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand with me this morning as we do to.